Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. So, Ella, when it comes to wrong scientific ideas, there are definitely some greatest hits. Mm-hmm. The ideas that every science historian is going to reach for. The Earth is flat. Flat Earth being one. The Four Humors is another favorite. But my favorite greatest hit, like the one on this list that has always intrigued me the most, is the theory of the luminiferous ether. The ether was supposedly the substance that pervaded all of space. And for some reason, I've always kind of imagined it as like this sparkly, mysterious jello. Jello? Okay. It's a very mysterious substance. I didn't know why seemingly every physicist in the 19th century believed in this stuff. Because the jello is invisible. It's an invisible sparkly it is, jello. It is an invisible sparkly jello. But after looking into the history of the luminiferous ether, I am convinced that not only did this theory make a ton of sense, it is actually our best wrong idea. So last May, I invited Harvard science historian David Kaiser to join me and host Ira Flato on Science Friday to talk about ether and how wrong ideas can lead to real science breakthroughs. Here's that conversation. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. And for the rest of the hour, we're going to be diving into the vaults of science history because the hosts of our podcast, Undiscovered, are working on a new series all about science history. And if you've read any of my books, you know how much I love science history. Co-host Annie Minoff is here to tell us about it. Hey, Annie, let's Hey, Ira. Yeah. So like you, I and my co-host, Ella Fetter, are huge science history buffs. And recently we started thinking about all the scientific theories and ideas that we used to think were true. Like over the course of history, these ideas were accepted science, and then all of a sudden they kind of weren't anymore. So spontaneous generation might be an example, uh, phrenology. And those ideas, they're kind of punchlines today, but we thought, what if we take them seriously? What if we ask, well, why did we think these things? What convinced us that they were true? And then how did we figure out that maybe we weren't? So that's what the series is all about. And today I thought we'd kick off with one, a theory that's one of my favorites. I think it is brilliant. It was useful. Uh, It made a ton of sense. It just wasn't true. Details, details. (laughs) Right. And that is the theory of the luminiferous ether. So to be our guide through the luminiferous ether, we have with us today David Kaiser. He's a professor of physics and history of science at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. David, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I think I want to ask you first about this word, luminiferous, what does that mean? Yeah, it's a great word, isn't it? It really just means light carrying. So luminous, like like lumos for our Harry Potter fans, it means light. Uh, and and ferris is like a like a ferris wheel to ferry something. So it's the light carrying or light bearing ether. That's where the word came from. And does that tell us about what this theory was supposed to do to explain? I mean, where does the luminiferous ether 
come from? Yeah, I, it's a very descriptive term. So the idea, which goes back a little over 200 years by now, early uh, in, in the 1800s, a number of, of naturalists, of, of uh, physicists of many stripes, were trying to understand the nature of light. Uh, Isaac Newton, even before them, had had very specific ideas that light was a stream of particles, of corpuscles coursing through the air. Uh, and that that account uh, had some sort of cracks in it. The people were less and less satisfied by the early 1800s. And what ultimately replaced it was a wave theory of light, that light was a, a wave phenomenon, and that would explain things like interference or diffraction or many, many very particular phenomena that people could actually see, uh, with, uh, could produce with light waves. And so the, the new idea uh, was that light was a wave, and that immediately raised the question, a wave of what? An ocean right. wave is a wave, you know, of water uh, on the ocean. Sound waves are are disturbances in the air, traveling through the air. So if light is a wave, the, the sort of unavoidable next question that these people began to face in the early 1800s was, it's a wave of what? What medium is sort of bearing or ferrying that wave? And they figured there must be some new substance, some as yet unexpected material that must pervade all of the universe, fill every nook and cranny, and it must be the light-bearing or light-carrying substance, the luminiferous ether. And how many people believed this? Like, was it uh, everybody, most people? It was uh, pretty much everybody, everybody who thought hard about optics, about the behavior of light. Uh, it wasn't uh, just sort of one idea among many. It was once the once the wave theory of light really took hold, and that was pretty quick in the early 1800s, then it really seemed unavoidable to people thinking about the behavior of light that there must be some medium, some light-bearing medium that could account for all the really quite amazing things that people were learning about optics. So I think we have to talk about one guy in particular, and that is Albert Michelson, correct? So he, he was one of these people who was super invested in investigating ether. Who was he and and where did he come from? He had a quite eventful early life, I understand. He really did. I mean, it's a, it's a, just an amazing story. It, um, Albert Michelson was born in a tiny little rural village in northern Europe on the border of what would later become the border between Germany and Poland. And when he was only two years old, he and his family moved to Northern California uh, in the mid-1850s. This was the height of the gold rush. This was like the, you know, the, the, the boom towns of, of the upper, uh, upper California, Northern California. And so he moved there as a two-year-old. His father became a merchant. He set up a, a dry goods store in this very kind of minimal mining town. And they literally just tried, tried to sort of scrape by. A few years later, the family moved to Nevada. So he was really, you know, this sort of uh, displaced immigrant family that found themselves in the in the far western United States, and not in any of the big cities. Really, in some some up and coming but kind of uh, you know border type areas. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell us about how you know they believed the ether existed, but it was invisible. Right? How are you? How are you going to measure it? And that's what he set up an experiment to do. He did. He had. He had, he was a, a really brilliant experimenter. In fact, he made his name as someone who was especially good at coaxing these very subtle, very difficult to measure effects, especially around the behavior of light. So their their best bet f to to learn about the ether was to study the stuff that the ether seemed to support, meaning light. Just to, to do very careful optical experiments. One of the first that Michelson did when he was actually still a student 
was to try to measure the speed of light to better accuracy than anyone had done before. He was building on, a, on an experimental design that, that others had, had, had thought of a few decades before, but he really went at it with real ingenuity. He improved it so much that he started to get the attention even of the experts in Europe, and that was a big deal. This was a, a, a young person uh, in the United States at a time when physics in the U.S. was still really uh, not even on the kind of uh, on the map for the great leaders in Europe. But this one one kid basically began, uh, you know, kind of getting attention for very careful, very clever experiments around optics. He's like a measurement freak. Like this is his thing. To like, how exact can I get it? That's right. In fact, his his measurement of the speed of light uh, was within a few thousandths of a percent of the present, you know, modern day best value. He didn't have lasers or fancy electronics, and yet he got so so close to our present value. And even what impressed his his contemporaries was the precision of that measurement. The the the, the error bars that he could report were so, so minimal because he was indeed so gifted with these optical experiments. So explain, what is the experiment that Michelson comes up with to try to detect the ether? How does that work? He got a fellowship uh, in 1880, so he was able to to leave. He'd been studying at the Naval Academy, actually in Annapolis, uh, and then he got a fellowship to study in some of these great centers in Europe to continue to learn about optics and, and the more modern theories about physics more generally. And while he was there, he was doing a lot of reading of the works by the great uh, James Clark Maxwell, who had, not too long before, only uh, a decade or two earlier, had really pieced together the sort of great synthesis of electricity, magnetism, and optics. And it was really Maxwell's work that convinced you know generations to come the light was nothing other than waves of electric and, man- and, mag- and magnetic fields propagating, moving through this light-bearing ether. So uh, so Michelson was reading all that he could from people like uh, Maxwell, and he began to realize, Michelson did, that, you know, if, if the ether is everywhere, and if we're on the Earth, the Earth is not sitting still. The Earth moves around the sun. The sun ha- seems to have you know, local motions w- with respect to the galaxy. We're moving through the ether. And so Michelson began to wonder, could we measure our own motion? Could we measure the Earth's motion through this all-pervasive mysterious medium of the ether. And he reasoned sort of as follows. He said, if, if you're standing outside on a, on a still day, then you don't feel any particular breeze on your face. But once you get on a bicycle and start pedaling really quickly, you'll feel, you'll feel a wind on your face because you're moving through the medium. In that case, the medium would be the air. And so he said the same thing must be happening as the earth you know, whizzes through this medium of the ether. And if so, could we try to measure its effects on how light would behave? Can, In other words, can we measure the ether wind on our face? Exactly. Can we measure the impact of the ether as made as made manifest, as, 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 as made clear, because we're moving through the ether? So basically study optics here on Earth really carefully with great precision, and we should be able to measure the effect of the ether because we're moving through it. And so that experiment was a tremendous success, right? It was. I mean, he first dreamed it up uh, in 1881. He actually got some funding for it from Alexander Graham Bell. This guy was really, you know, on the rise. Uh, He first built a a small kind of prototype where the device was about one meter, you know, roughly three feet on each side. So not huge, manageable, to see if he could get the ideas literally to, to fit together. Uh, and he uh, conducted the test with this sort of small-scale device, did not find any particular evidence for our motion through the ether, but he figured that's because it's a small device and he can keep 
going. A few years later, he tried a much more ambitious version with a colleague uh, named Edward Morley. So it became known as the Michelson-Morley experiment. They were now working in Cleveland at at what's now uh, Case Western University. And so they built a a device where the arms were 11 meters long. This really filled a room. You know, think of the ambition. They had to shield against any kind of vibration, so they set this thing in a huge vat of mercury, which I don't recommend Ooh. for those <laughs> trying this at home today. But they really wanted to tamp down any vibrations from you know from the outside or anything like that. And David, just to give people an idea, like this instrument that they're building, I mean, we still use this kind of instrument today for stuff. All, for all over the place. That's right. It, it, the instrument uh, has outlived its original motivation many, many times over. And it's 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 central to many areas of science and technology. The LIGO project used it to detect gravity waves. It's at the heart of LIGO. It's used for all kinds of industrial calibrations. It's used throughout many, many fields of science. It's an amazing tool that now we sort of take for granted. Uh, but it really was a, a great, great advance when, when Michelson was sort of following this dream back in, in the 1800s. So he built this giant version of the original experiment, gets it going, and... That's a huge success, too, right? Well, it depends on how you measure success. <laughs> he, I should say, Michelson continued to impress the, the real elite scientists in Europe. He was the first physicist based in the United States to win the Nobel Prize when those began to be offered around 1900. So for, for yes, not he, finding something? For, for doing uh, sort of highly precise optical experiments. Uh, and... And not finding something uh, then as now, the very smart uh, people could say, well, maybe there's something about how the instrument behaves that's more subtle than we thought. Maybe the thing we're trying to measure has more subtle properties than we thought. So that's, you know, it spurred much, much more research. But he didn't find the ether, is what you're saying. He did not. He didn't. In fact, I should say he, he lived till 1931. So that's uh, 50 years after he built his first device. And to his dying day, he considered himself something of a failure. May all our Nobel laureates be easier on themselves and the rest of us, too. So he won the, the great prestige in the profession, but was convinced really literally decades later that the ether must be there. And it was his darn fault for not finding it. We'll be back after the break with What Killed the Ether. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. (laughs) I am a writer, and I have this this very slight hunch. He has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. So what finally killed the idea of the luminiferous ether? You know, the popular story goes that Einstein used this experiment as his launching pad and killed the idea. Is that how it happened? Uh, The short answer is no. And so whether Einstein even knew about this experiment is still really pretty hotly debated among among the experts. If he knew about it, it would have been most likely second or third hand, reading about other people's accounts of it. He was certainly not kind of obsessing over it, although many of his colleagues in Europe were at the time. And so Einstein was coming at the question of how light should behave or how we should measure the effects of light when either the sender or the receiver are in motion with 
with respect to each other, he was following a very different line of thinking than, than pretty much everyone mm. else on the topic. So, so Einstein was not driven to relativity because of this experiment. And in fact, uh, most people didn't sort of buy relativity right away. So the ether lived a lot longer uh, even after the introduction of, of special relativity, for really for at least a solid decade to decade and a half. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. I'm Ira Flato here with Annie Minoff, co-host of our Undiscovered podcast, uh, working on a new history of science ideas, talking about the ether. First with David Kaiser, professor of physics and of history of science at MIT in Cambridge. I mean, so David, is this a tragic story for you? You have Michelson, poor guy, working his whole career to try to measure this stuff that he's convinced is there. And he just thinks he's a failure because he can't, you know, design the instrument that's going to be fine enough to detect it. That seems to me like a pretty sad story. It, you know, I think on the individual level, I think it does have some sadness. Now, again, let's be clear. He had a brilliant career. I mean, he career. had a Nobel. Surely <laughs> that Nobel cushioned Price. the blow. That's right. He, he, he did okay. The local boy did good. But but nonetheless, he, he considered himself scientifically that he'd never really achieved what he set out to. And that, that is, there's a mo- there's an element of real, of real sadness to that. On the other hand, the instrument has outlived its original motivation, you know, many fold. Uh, he was able to do other things, even in his own lifetime with that instrument that really did trigger enormous progress. He used this instrument to be the first person to measure the diameter of a distant star. That's pretty amazing. He also was able to measure um, effects in atomic physics that really helped jumpstart quantum theory. I mean, there were many things that he could, even in his own lifetime, could point to with real pride, even though he died (laughs) thinking there must be an ether and he failed to find it. So did the ether do us any good or would we have been better never to have conceived of this idea? You know, I think it did us worlds of good. I mean, I always uh, joke that our students here at MIT in many places can still buy t-shirts with Maxwell's equations on them. I love those t-shirts. Maxwell derived the laws that we still use the, the governing laws for electricity and magnetism and, and, and therefore all of optics and everything else because he was trying to understand the physics of the ether. His colleague, Lord Kelvin, uh, said uh, in the 1880s, the luminiferous ether is the only substance we are confident of in dynamics, the only substance. One thing we are sure of is the reality and substantiality of the luminiferous ether. It drove these people's work, and we still use their equations. We use their work in many ways as a guide really to this day. Hmm. Is there any modern-day equivalent of the ether? Well, that's a good question. You know, Einstein himself toyed somewhat tongue-in-cheek later in his career, wondering if his own later work in relativity had sort of reintroduced something like an ether, his work on the general theory of relativity, warping space-time. Maybe it wasn't a a material substance like a bowl of jelly, but maybe there's some other substance that we should think of. Uh, And then more, you know, in modern days, we we think about the Higgs boson pervading all of space, giving rise to observable properties. I mean, I think there are many ideas Mm -hmm. we can can see with some analogies, at least. David Kaiser, professor of physics at the History of Science, uh, History of Science at MIT in Cambridge. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was and, great, great fun. Annie Minoff, co-host of Undiscovered uh, Podcast, who's hard at work on a new series all about failed ideas of science history. Thank you, Annie. We look um, forward to this thank first you. one. Undiscovered is produced by me, Annie Minoff, and me, Ella Fetter. Our senior editor is Christopher Intagliata. And Ira Flato is the host of Science Friday. You can hear more at sciencefriday.com.